Last year, I premiered a free video series called High Impact, No Burnout. So my goal with this five-part mini-series was to offer nonprofit leaders some hope and advice. Hope that you can, in fact, do a fantastic job and maybe get home in time for dinner or get home in time to make dinner or maybe take a weekend off. The mini-series will be back soon. So if you missed it, you can jump onto our wait list at nonprofitleadershiplab.com and we'll let you know when it's coming to a laptop near you. But the advice part of the mini-series is what has led me to today's topic. We need to get the sector to embrace prioritizing, to make an active decision that one thing is more important than the other. And today, I want to talk about one of those priorities, what I call building an army of the engaged, increasing the footprint of your organization, working to make sure that as many people know about your work and are invited to be a part of it. And that, my friends, is where communications comes in. It is my hope that today you'll finish this podcast and understand that communications is integral to your work and not an, oh, I wish I at least had an intern who could run my Twitter feed kind of approach. Frustrations many of you have, I know. I need board members, better candidate pools for my open positions, volunteers. I want to run a campaign to get folks to sign a petition, but my list is so small. The antidote? You need communications, a strategy, a plan to build the power your organization needs and that comes with growing an army of engaged folks. Folks who are as lit up about your work as you are. And no, you don't have to have a big budget. What if I told you there was a simple model that would make it easier for you to leverage communications in order to advance your mission? Or that there was a book that could help you set goals, guide the tactics you employ, and identify gaps and opportunities? I'd have you at hello, wouldn't I? Well, hello. My guest has written that very book. Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, author, blogger, and founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, gets it. She is here to help. My guest today is Sarah Durham. She is the founder of Big Duck. She started this uniquely named organization in 1994 to help nonprofits increase their visibility, raise money, and achieve their missions. Today, she uses her deep experience in nonprofit communications to guide an entire team in Brooklyn at Big Duck. The author of Brand Raising, How Nonprofits Raise Visibility and Money Through Smart Communications, her expertise has been borrowed by NPR, the Chronicle of Philanthropy Guide Star, and others. She's a sought-after speaker on topics such as branding, fundraising, and other nonprofit communications topics. She is a total nonprofit communications nerd. She was named a top fundraiser under 40 by Fundraising Success Magazine in 2006 and one of the most influential women in technology by Fast Company in 2010. An adjunct professor at NYU's Robert Ragner Graduate School of Public Service, and she teaches strategic communications to other aspiring nonprofit nerds. Sarah has just stepped down as the chair of the National Brain Tumor Society's Board of Directors. She term-limited off, but has a 25-year volunteer history with an organization that has great personal relevance. So this is Sarah's second time on the Joan Gary Podcast Rodeo. In my first episode, that's episode 38 for those of you who track, it's called What the Heck is Marketing Anyway? She offered terrific insights, and it's clear that her insights just keep coming. She's got a new book, The Nonprofit Communications Engine. It's filled with insights, and I am delighted that she's going to share them with you today. Sarah Durham, I'm really glad you're here. Joan, it is awesome to be back, and thanks for that incredible intro. You're very welcome. 
um, <clears throat> some of it I think you or some of your people wrote. <laughs> just saying. So um, tell us a little bit. Just give us a quick uh, the elevator pitch about Big Duck. What are you all about and who comes to you and for what? So Big Duck, as you noted, has been around for 25 years, and our mission is to help organizations advance their missions by using communications in a strategic way. So we do a lot of things, but a lot of what we do is help organizations establish a clear voice through smart branding work and launch great campaigns. We do a lot of capital campaign work and recruitment campaign work. We also do a lot of work that is about internal capacity building for communications in in getting your communications team aligned, having the right people in the right seats, et cetera. And that's really sort of the jumping off point for, for this book. So I'm delighted to be here. When you started the organization 25 years ago, did you imagine that fast forward 25 years, you would be the entity that you would, that you are today? Was it, so I always love it when people start new businesses and they, they actually have aspirations for what the thing is going to become. I'm always curious. Is this the thing you thought it would become? You know, I, I started the business when I was pretty young. I was in my twenties and I didn't really know what it was going to become. And what's been, what's been interesting about the past 25 years is that communications as a sector and the nonprofit sector, both have gone through radical, radical transformation. So I don't think I could have anticipated where we would be. And I think for me, actually, every day in some ways feels new because the nonprofit sector is growing and maturing and evolving. And so, so is communication. So uh, it's just been a wild ride. So 10 years ago, you published your first book and it was on what you called Brand Raising, How Nonprofits Raise Visibility and Money Through Smart Communications. So fast forward 10 years later, you got a new book. So my question is why? Do you like writing books so much that you wanted to get a bigger bite of it? Um, uh, You could also say no to that. I actually wrote my book and I enjoyed writing it, but I did write it sitting on a, uh, outside a small villa I had rented in the south of France, drinking the most delicious and cheapest rosé wine ever. Um, So I'm ready to write another one there. Um, so, but I did like writing a book, but I also am curious what gap you believe this new book is filling for people. I I think I wrote another book because I am a glutton for punishment. (laughs) I I wasn't as smart as you were. I, I, I wrote this book, um, early in the mornings before going to my day job. Um, but I, I also wrote this book because I have seen a pattern happening over and over and over again. And I, I wanted to try to address that pattern in some way that would be useful for the nonprofit sector that I hadn't yet seen addressed. And, and really what that was about was um, realizing that in so many parts of a nonprofit's management, so many parts of running an organization that an executive director has to do, there are best practices. There are best practices for fundraising. There are best practices for programs evaluation, for financial management. But there are not necessarily a lot of best practices in communications, in part because communications keeps changing. Um, And nor has there really ever been a scalable model that an executive director can pick up and apply to their organization that works, whether they are very small or very large. And so it felt to me like this kind of interesting challenge to say, is there a model out there or a framework out there that will help an executive director manage communications to build what you called the army of the engaged, regardless of what kind of organization they're running. And it's to me um, to be, you know, 
hopefully a worthwhile exercise to figure that out. <laughs> when you, I'm always curious. So, so that was the hypothesis going into the writing of the book that there would be something that had universal application, whether I had a quarter of a million dollar budget or I added three zeros to the end of that. And um, did you go into the exercise sort of knowing that that was true and that you were then making the case for it? Or did it kind of reveal itself to you as you kept writing? Well, I have... I guess I could answer that both ways. I have definitely felt for a long time that there should be a model out there that would work. I wasn't 100% sure what it was. And one of the fun things about writing a book is that you get the opportunity to do research in a way that's kind of, you know, disassociated from other things you do. And so I use this as an excuse to call up people who work in organizations that I don't know personally, maybe very large organizations, very small organizations, spent a lot of time talking to people at conferences about what they do. And, um, and through those conversations, I, I got glimpses into worlds that a lot of people don't have. And, and that helped me crystallize really, really what this is. Um, yeah. I also, also went through a process that I really recommend to anybody who writes a book, which was that I, I gave the book to about 11 different people in different jobs in nonprofits to beta read as I was writing and got a lot of feedback. And, and a lot of those people said to me like, well, you know, this doesn't really hold up or this does, or I would change this. And, and that was a great part of the journey too. Um, that requires a certain kind of humility because sometimes when you start writing, you, you end up being quite sure about things. And in fact, you're expected to be sure, right? By virtue of ha- having a book deal, you are seen as the expert. So there's a, 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 it's an interesting approach for you to say, I, I get to be a smarter expert because I engage these others rather than the pressure of feeling I'm the expert and I better have the answers. So I, I like the approach a lot because I, I um, being an expert demands that you get smarter and uh, that you don't hold all the expertise. So very interesting. So the first section of your book is called Get Clear About Effective Communications. And I I wonder what you think nonprofits are unclear about and if you might try to clear that up. My experience talking to a lot of people in nonprofits is that they tend to think of communications in somewhat reactive and tactical terms. So they think of communications as, you know, people who get the social media done, the people who get out the newsletter, the people who maintain our, our website. And, and oftentimes in the day-to-day management of communications, there is just a volume of those tactics. There's tons of stuff to do. Where I want to encourage organizations to get clearer about communications is having very specific outcomes for their organization's communications. What is, what is all that stuff in service of? What is the website in service of or social media in service of? And in the beginning of the book, I identify three things that a successful communications team should be able to generate. The the first and the biggest by far is engagement, Um, building that army of engaged. That's the number one thing. If your comms work or your comms team isn't helping people reach, you know, reaching people and helping them connect to your organization, then really what's the point? Um, So there's a lot of real estate in this book spent on that topic. But then the second thing that I think a lot of organizations lose sight of is the opportunity for communications to help your organization craft 
a clear and compelling organizational voice so that when different people in your organization, particularly as you grow, because this is a challenge in bigger organizations, when different people communicate, are they all talking about the work in the same way? Are they talking about the mothership or just talking about the programs? And then the last piece is just momentum. How do you build momentum in communication so that you're not totally dependent on your dynamic CEO or that one person in communications who knows how you, you know, how MailChimp works? <laughs> um, so a couple of questions that those three outcomes raise for me. <clears throat> do you think that people are always clear about what engagement means. So for example, I'm, and on a totally separate note, I spend a lot of time with CEOs that I coach who say my board is not engaged, but they haven't really defined what engagement is. And so looking for engagement presumes a shared understanding of what engagement is. And um, so I wonder if you could just tease out what you think engagement means. That's such a great question. I, I, I agree. Engagement is a kind of easy to use word. And it's, it's made more complex in the nonprofit sector than I think it is in the for-profit sector because there's so many different types of engagement. There's programmatic engagement. So I would say, you know, on the program side, that might be reaching people who should become members of your organization or who should participate in your programs. There is fundraising engagement, which is reaching people who should support the organization and engaging with them, whether they're individuals or corporations or foundations. There's um, activism is a type of engagement. So there's many, many different types of engagement. And I think one of the reasons communications people struggle is that they're not clear which of those things their job is in service of or or if it's actually in service of, of all of them. So in a lot of organizations, you find one um, very uh, overextended communications person who feels overwhelmed because they're being asked to build engagement across many, many different output points. And, and that's a, a bigger job than one human being can probably reasonably be expected to do. Um, I'm going to park this question because I think that what you just described also speaks to who are you speaking to with that clear voice? So hold that over there because I want to, the next question, so your three things are engagement, clear voice, and sustainable momentum. Um, voice. Tell me about voice. And is there a distinction between clarity of voice and clarity of message? I would say clarity of message is a part of clarity of voice. And, and this is perhaps the connective tissue to my first book, Brand Raising, and to a lot of the work that we do here at Big Duck, because the organization's voice in many organizations is a little bit of an afterthought. We tend to promote programs or promote, you know, a specific initiative that we think should be front, front and center. But how do you explain, particularly as you grow, how do you explain program A in relationship to programs B, C, D, or the program model overall? So messaging is, an, is one aspect of your organization's voice. But um, unfortunately, I think too many organizations just haven't taken that step back and said, you know, not just who are we, what's in our strategic plan, but how do we communicate that in a clear and compelling way? What's our voice? How do we make sure that people connect with us in a way that is authentic for the whole organization, not just for this one particular initiative? How much of the clarity of voice piece is connected to uh, having run an organization and led an organization and having seen the kind of imp sort of 
imprint a leader can have on an organization. Um, how connected is or should the voice, this voice you talk about, be connected to the person who leads the organization? That That's a big topic. And actually, I wrote a blog about this. I can send you, uh, if you want to link to it in the show notes. About- I totally would love to do that. Um, it's it's a blog about how messaging is for everybody in your organization, perhaps except your executive director, how most executive directors won't use messaging. And it is often the case that the executive director, particularly a founder, is a great communicator. And one of the reasons the executive director is intuitively often a great communicator is that they know how to adapt what they're talking about or the organization's message to whomever they're speaking about. But that's a special skill that actually many other people in the organization will lack. If uh-huh. people are, you know, are in used to working, for instance, in a particular department or a particular program, they might be great at talking about their work, but they're probably not great at talking about our work. So the voice of the executive director is both important to be, um, you know, a, a powerful and persuasive presence in in certain rooms. Um, and it can very often be conflated with the voice of the organization, again, particularly in founder-led organizations. But I think it's really important for an organization to have a voice that is separate from the executive directors and can withstand the departure of the executive director. Because when that person goes, you could be in big trouble if, if they're synonymous with the organization. Completely true. And I suspect that that ties in a little bit with sustainable momentum, right? Is that all of these things exactly. have to be sustainable regardless of who's, who's behind the wheel, right? So engagement, clear voice, sustainable momentum. Um, <clears throat> do these carry equal weight as you think about, uh, uh, about them? They don't carry equal weight. If, it, if communications is, is a pie chart, I would say that the engagement piece is easily 75% of the time. It's where the vast majority of effort and energy and time will be spent. Clear voice is a little bit more episodic. You might, um, as a communications team, do some, some kind of moments of heavy lift around branding or voice or training your team. And then a lot of it just becomes coaching and monitoring and checking in to make sure it stays on track. And sustainable momentum is largely about setting up practices and processes that help decentralize any one person's kind of uh, unique power in communication. So sometimes that's about capacity building in the organization so that people other than the ED can speak and write and communicate about it. Sometimes that's about building practices like having checklists or templates that anybody in the organization can use to write or tweet or whatever so that it's not just that one person in communications who kind of holds the cards and becomes a gatekeeper. I love that. Um, So now I'm going to take out of the parking lot the question of audience, which I think in communication strategy, I think can trip people up. And the um, uh, nonprofit leaders will often say, well, I, I have to talk to everyone. Right. I have I'm so my my communication strategy has to speak to donors, it has to speak to activists, it has to speak to uh thought leaders in the sector. And I think that as a result of that, you end up with communication strategies that feel or communications, the execution of it feels kind of um unclear and a bit of a hot mess. And um so how do you approach that when your client says, when you say, Who's your audience? and they say, Everybody's my audience. 
Yeah. And in the book, I have a model for how you can start to prioritize your audience. That's a, that's a critical conversation because if your audience is everybody, really your audience is nobody. Yes. There, is, there is nothing that uh, is out of bounds when your audience is everybody. And I have yet to meet an organization that has enough time or enough money to effectively reach the whole wide world. So, um, so as challenging as it can be, it is critical to identify your audiences. And, and one of the big lessons I learned as I was researching this book is, um, is how the communications person serves other departments. And, and one of the ways I think it's critical that they serve other departments is to help them prioritize. So if the communications team is, for instance, in a merged team with the fundraisers. Sometimes those are called advancement teams, right? Yep. And well, I'm see- I feel like I'm seeing more of that external yeah. affairs under yeah. one umbrella. That is a trend. And there's some evidence that suggests that those teams are more effective and that the people working in them are, are happier, which is another, another topic. But, but basically, so let's say you work in a communications team that is predominantly there to support fundraising efforts. Part of what you can do as a communications person is you can work with the people in development to say, who are the most important people for us to reach? Do we, do we want to prioritize major donors over mid-level or lower-level donors? Do we want to prioritize corporate or foundation support? And to help to do the research and craft the personas of the key people that you need to communicate with so that the communications channels and messages that are delivered to those people are actually strategic. They reflect the interests and the priorities of the people you're trying to reach. For me, for me, the aha, as I was writing the book and interviewing people, is that the best communicators understand that their job is to tease out of their colleagues in other departments that thing that crystallizes who the audience is and crystallizes how to engage those audiences because that, that, is, um, that is really the essence of how you do the work. Um, I love that. So the um, after you talk about sort of getting clear about effective communications, you sort of break out, you talk strategy, and then you talk about team, culture, uh, reflection, process, and tools. And I'm, you know, we don't have a long enough podcast for you to take us through them in detail, but I'm interested in, uh, as a sort of a bit of an appetizer for the audience, um, this part of the book is really about kind of about the how, right? It's about the how. And right. the people who are listening to this podcast, they're hearing you, they're getting it, and they and they want to know about a little bit about the how. And I and you just talked about sort of the exercise about prioritizing your audience um, because people are looking for these kinds of tools. And I saw, you know, there's a, a, a good assessment. So give me an example of some of the tools that people will find in the book or resources, you know, in some of these different areas so they can say, yeah, 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 yeah. I totally need that. I got to go buy Sarah's book. <laughs> Well, so if you think of the outcomes of successful communications, those three things we just talked about, as the cake you're trying to bake in your organization, the the six elements that the book unpacks are the ingredients. And I think this is where a lot of people get lost. They know what outcomes they might want or they have some aspirational outcomes. They just don't know what they, particularly as an executive director, need need to put in to bake the cake. And so, um, so there's a self-assessment in the book. There's also a version of it you can download on the Big Duck website that's like a printout 
where you can, um, you can self-assess yourself as an organization, first on the outcomes, how are you doing building an engagement, clear voice or sustainable momentum, and then assess yourself on the six elements to see, are there key elements that are necessary to achieve those outcomes that you just haven't thought of, or you haven't built any infrastructure around? And what I encourage executive directors to do, because they're all busy people, is start with the low-hanging fruit. Start with the areas that you really haven't focused on or you have no capacity in. And, and what the book does is it basically breaks down each of those six areas into its component parts, the biggest of which is strategy. There are, there are a lot of, um, I think, holes that emerge in terms of how you translate your strategic plan or your organization's operating plan into communications. And linking that to a clear strategy for communications is critical. Audience identification is one example of that. Yep. It's one of the pieces you have to do to have a smart communication strategy. So we are talking with Sarah Duck. Sarah Duck, listen to me. <laughs> I bet that's not the first time someone not has said the first that. Time. <laughs> no, it'll be the last time for me, though. Uh, we're talking to Sarah Durham. She is the founder of Big Duck, which is uh, a firm that helps nonprofits increase their visibility, raise money, and achieve their missions. She's the author of a book called Brand Raising, How Nonprofits Raise Visibility and Money Through Smart Communications. And uh, I say self-proclaimed uh, nonprofit communications nerd and has just recently published a book called The Nonprofit Communications Engine, a leader's guide to managing mission-driven marketing and communications. Uh, it is a it is a swell book, and we've been talking a little bit about the component parts of it. I wanted to shift a little bit and talk um, about what something that you said at the open was that that your challenge was how can I build how can I write this book that is where the techniques are scalable regardless of the size of your organization. And so we have, um, and you and I were talking the other day, so I have thousands of members in my nonprofit leadership lab who, you know, are lucky if they have an intern or a teenage daughter who actually knows what a hashtag is and can help them out on certain days when there is an event coming up. Um, and um, it seems daunting to no small nonprofits. It seems like, oh, I wish I, I only wish I could do that, but it's not as important as the other things. Um, so tell me how you think that this book, uh, read by somebody who's maybe not a founder, but maybe has taken on the reins of an organization that has a, you know, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollar budget, um, how will this book? Uh, how will they be able to bring, bring communications to life in a different way as a result of this book? You know, if you're, if you're uh, operating in an organization where you don't have a budget or the capacity to have full-time staff, what I think this book is going to give you is some perspective on how to assemble a team, perhaps of volunteers, perhaps of a mix of freelancers or board members who can start to, to help you do this work. You know, I definitely think less is more. And when, you know, we often get calls where people are asking, you know, how important is it for their organization to be on, on the, the latest social media tool? You know, this, this, this year it's TikTok, right? Should my organization have a TikTok channel? You know, philosophically, especially in a small organization, less is going to be more. But where are you going to put that volunteer time? Where are you going to put your limited staff time? Where are you going to put that freelancer time? 
it's got to start with a strategy and it's got to start with some clarity over what are the things that are most essential for your organization to do in order to, to reach and engage people. Uh, I am a huge fan of the sort of communications kitchen cabinet. Um, I, I feel like um, I will talk with boards who are thinking about how to add capacity to their boards. And they'll say, we need somebody from Silicon Valley. This is what they'll say. And the primary reason is because they think there's gold in them, their hills. Right. As opposed to... What kind of assets does that person have as access to that could help you sit down with the executive director and a couple of volunteers and actually create a set of outcomes and a strategy that that take into account what limited resources you may or may not have? And I just don't think we you know, either we don't have them on their board, we don't think to put people on our board, or we don't think these, I'm a huge kitchen cabinet fan, because I think they are, you know, the best way to bring someone close to your organization is to ask them their opinions. And, um, and I just, we come so often to the work from a place of scarcity. Oh, I wish I had, I don't have, as opposed to where could I find? And I just, um, and so I think that this book with a small SWAT team of people um, could make could make a huge difference in setting a, a sort of a real roadmap for the work that you do. Um, and I totally agree that less is more. Um, one of the things that uh, that is a little bit of a soapbox for me, and I wonder if you stand on it with me, is that... <laughs> I think that there's something that thwarts nonprofits from investing in communications work. Um, and it is the, uh, the dreaded, actually I call it the two four letter word, overhead. Is being perceived as spending too much money on something that funders see as overhead. And uh, if I could sort of carry a flag, I would say that building the power of your organization through increased engagement and visibility, that your engine is stronger and thus has to be more impactful as a result of this kind of work. And if seen in that context, there's, it's, it's program work. And I wonder if you, um, if you feel the same way or you think it's, it's some kind of hybrid. You know, I'm definitely, I'm, I'm up there on the soapbox with you. Uh, cheering for that, cheering for that too. You know, it, it strikes me that it is a mistake to think of communications as a separate function or secondary or supportive. It is hand in hand with the program's work. It's hand in hand with the fundraising work. It's, it's interwoven. One of the metaphors I use in the book is, you know, if your nonprofit is a puzzle with pieces, then communication should be the shellac on the puzzle. It's not necessarily a separate piece. It has to be interwoven. And in Big Duck's 25 plus year history, we have seen two um, huge economic uh, kind of crises that have impacted the nonprofit sector. The first was September 11th, yes. when a lot of nonprofits um, just felt the world was changing so dramatically, they put everything on hold. And, and communications at that point got cut out of just about every organization I was working with at the time. Contrast that to 2008 when the economic crisis happened in 2008. 
And actually, what was interesting about that time was that many nonprofits, in my experience, did not cut communications. They, they, they did understand that um, if they were going to be competitive in a tighter fundraising environment, they did need to communicate better. So I, I do think that the tide is starting to change in terms of leaders understanding that communications is one of many strategies that advances the mission. And hopefully, increasingly, they're getting clear it's, it's essential and not just, you know, kind of a decorative overhead. Yeah, I was working with a client where we were talking about, so just the, imagine this as you're standing on your elliptical machine, but the big box at the top that is the program work of your organization, it's a big rectangle. And then there are lines underneath it for communications, development, finance, operations. And those things are the supportive things. They're like the helper departments, right? Mm -hmm. And if if you've not read Jim Collins from Good to Great in the Social Sector, you must. It's only 38 pages long. Um, He was smart that way. And he creates this thing called the hedgehog concept where things are interwoven, what you're passionate about, what, what, what matters to people and a resource engine. And I, um, and we started to draw at this staff retreat, the, the box up at the top and these helper departments. And then we started to draw, what could it look like? What should it look like? And that communications, and this, this was a legal advocacy organization, wasn't just about getting press, press about a particular case, but it was also, they do a lot of class action work. And so the communications is also, how do I educate the public in the state of Arkansas about this class action suit we're doing on a factory that's doing X, Y, and Z that's harming, you know, the, the, residents of that state. And that be, that becomes communications too. And Absolutely. it requires a kind of mind shift that, um, that can be hard for an organization that has lived in the space of communications as the helper. Could you just get me a quote in the New York Times? That's all I want from you. Yeah. Yeah. I want to, I want to build on what you're saying. Cause I think that's true. You know, I think there's a little bit of a hangover that's starting to fade, but it's been there for a while in the nonprofit sector that communications is first and foremost about media relations. Right. But, they, but in your example, what you're talking about is it can be about government relations. It can be about moving the needle on an issue. Um, in the book, I draw a, a Venn diagram of three interlocking ser- uh, you know, uh, services or components in a nonprofit. One is fundraising, one is programs, one is advocacy work. And communications can can easily be intrinsic to all of those. All three. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, yes. And so, for instance, we we did a piece of work at Big Duck for an organization called the National Latina Institute for Reproductive Justice. And um, one of the things we were helping them do was determine what was the skill set they needed in-house with their communications director. They were about to go through a, a search for a comms director. And what we found, we, we we did a bunch of work with their senior leadership team, was that Yes, they needed to be great with the media, but they also, to your point, needed to be able to communicate to grassroots audiences in their uh, community about the issues that were going on. And they also needed to be able to support development with some things. You know, they they had this very um, woven into the fabric, essential nature that supported every department in the organization. Uh, Very, very smart. So I have... Two questions, and I think that probably will be all we'll have time for. Um, 
You talked about 2000, uh, you talked about September 11th and you talked about 2008. Um, let's talk about 2020, a presidential mm-hmm. election year. Um, what thinking do you have about communications in an election year? Clearly, I have heard, which I think to be largely, um, largely a myth, um, that fundraising drops during a presidential year. Um, but how should, I mean, I have my own points of view on this and uh, I'd be interested in yours. Um, are, are there are there things that organizations should be doing differently in 2020? Because cutting through the clutter is not going to be easy. Yeah, cutting through the clutter is never easy. And particularly during years that have exceptionally noisy kind of media cycles. Um, I think what we're going to see in 2020 is that there will be a lot of organizations who are going to work really hard to cut through that clutter, either pre-election or post-election, because their work in some way plays off of or relates to what's being discussed politically. The, The advice that I've given to a few organizations is if you have not had a lot of visibility in your, with your target audience, and you're in an area of work that isn't necessarily a part of the political narrative, it's going to be particularly hard for you to to get on the radar this year. So for instance, I had a conversation a couple of weeks ago with one organization that does really important work in New York City, but doesn't necessarily have a political angle. And what it's going to take to, to get heard, is particularly to get media attention or to reach new donors, Uh, The donors they're going to want to reach, they're going to be paying attention to the election. They're not going to be paying attention to a new organization. So I I think you just have to really think, can you tell a story that feels relevant right now? And if you can, it's a real opportunity for you at any point, you know. Um, But if you can't, then you've got to be really strategic about where you spend your time and money because it's just going to be, it's going to be a rough one. Yeah. I also just think that... um and I say this amidst a, a, a deeply divided, angry, polarized world, right? But in their own, in each in their own way, candidates are trying to paint a picture of a world that is better, is fairer, more just. You may totally disagree with, with, with what fairness and justice looks like, but <clears throat> those common values and themes are in the public square in a way that they they aren't in other years. And so I do think that there are many more hooks to get up on the platform of making the world fairer, more just, more equitable, and that that isn't the sole purview of, honestly, of progressives or Democrats, that, that those people on the other side of the aisle believe as deeply in those things as we, as, as Democrats or liberals or however you label them, they, they just have a strategy that, that is people, that people, you know, there are different strategies that people vehemently agree with or disagree with. So I do think that there's a universal thing about a presidential election that is about taking the world someplace better. And that in that spirit, every nonprofit has something to say. Um, so I think that's interesting. I wanted to end by um, by asking you, um, uh, you told me about your board service at uh, the National Brain Tumor Society. And I wanted to ask you 
Um, where do boards play a role in communication strategy? You know, are they part of the solution as organizations try to drive into this work? Are they the folks that think more arcanely? Um, are they... Um, I have heard many organizations where the board says to the new CEO, oh, I'm so glad you're here. We never get quoted in the New York Times and I we all hate the logo, right? And so I wonder, <laughs> you know, how many new CEOs I coach where they say the board really wants me to change the logo. I said, could you tell them that that's not a priority right now? Um, and I, and I, um, I'm always interested because I do think about really, really swell nonprofits as these high-functioning twin-engine jets. Where does the board fit in, as you've seen? And any advice, if I'm a board chair, about how to lead an organization and lead with my CEO in this arena to best effect? You know, I think years ago, you actually did a podcast on this topic that I listened to and I shared with David Ahrens, who's the CEO of the National Brain Tumor Society. And he and I talked about it a lot. We used it as a metaphor. I think you, my memory of your, your interview was that it was about the idea of the board chair and the executive director sitting kind of side by side, co-piloting a plane, right? That's exactly how I think about it. And I think that the, I think that that, that image is true for communications, except you've got the staff on one side and the board on the other, In right. it, which is to say that it's not all on the staff, nor is it all on the board. It has to be a partnership and a complementary partnership. You know, in an organization that is perhaps larger with a board that is more governance oriented, the opportunity for the board is going to be to leverage its connections to support communications, whether that's, um, you know, a, a board member who works at a corporation trying to get the marketing department of their corporation to do some pro bono work that the staff could use help with, whether it's, you know, accessing a connection to a journalist or something, whether it's speaking at an event or being out there as a visible ambassador for the organization. In larger organizations and more, more uh, governance-oriented boards, I do think that it's really most useful if the staff leads the dance, if the executive director or the comms people can say, hey, board, here's really where we need you to add firepower and muscle. Because hopefully in a large organization, the staff has some strategic communications capacity and they're, they're professionals. So we want to let the professionals do their jobs. And the board, I think, can, you know, can, can engage in the dance, but let them lead. In smaller organizations, and particularly organizations where the board is doing more hands-on volunteer work, then I think that sometimes the board does more of the heavy lift. I've seen, mm -hmm. I've seen board members who um, actively do, you know, develop messaging or they, right. or, you know, do things like that. I think that that for staff people can be very tricky because it's almost impossible for a staff person to say to the board person, gee, I really hate that logo you're proposing <laughs> or, you know, you've just given us some messaging. I could never use that. It's totally wrong or it's completely right. offensive or something like that. So I do think that the, the board staff dynamic is always challenging whenever the board starts to roll up their sleeves and, you know, put their hands in the soil of the day-to-day -day work. Um, but I've seen, I've seen, you know, particularly in my experiences at the National Brain Tumor Society, if you have an executive director who's a straight talker and who has a lot of integrity 
and you as a board member can hopefully encourage them to, to tell you when you've overstepped the boundary or tell you what you need, then that's, that's the special sauce. That's what makes it work. And I was really fortunate at the National Brain Tumor Society to have that kind of partnership with the CEO. The, um, I, I also, it's one of the reasons I like the twin engine jet metaphor is establishing up front how high the altitude of your conversation is, right? Is this is what you bring to the table. This is what we bring to the table. We don't want to get into a situation where you actually develop messaging that really is, is actually dissonant because you actually aren't as close to the work. And at the same time, you know a lot about this stuff, and you're the person that's going to have to be one of the lead ambassadors. So you honor each other's place, but you actually set some expectations about the altitude of the conversation. And if you don't do that, then you can risk offending a board member who says, I, I drew a logo. It's really cool. You want to see it? <laughs> Which is like one of the scariest things I can imagine ever. Um, so um, we are about out of time. Um, I, uh, I really appreciated the conversation. And I, I hope that what folks are taking away from this couple things is that um, uh, this whole notion of the shellac on the puzzle, the notion of the of where communications lives. Um, I think that Sarah's Sarah's diagram of the intersecting circles and the place that communications lives in each of them, like so much about so much about the work that we do requires people to think differently, to be open-minded about a different kind of mindset. If we looked at those intersecting circles uh, and started to think about your organization in that way, I bet you'd have a whole lot less tension between communications and development. Just guessing you would. Um, and that this is not the sole purview of large organizations, that this is not something um, that you have to leave over to the side and sort of that gets cut out of a budget or that you wish you could do. Um, I am writing one of the new chapters I'm writing for my second edition of my book currently is called Size Matters. Uh, I, I don't know if I'll get that through the publisher or not. Um, yeah, um, I, I did get a garbage can on the cover of my last book. So I, I, I'm pretty persuasive. But anyway, it's really about sort of the superpowers and the kryptonite of small nonprofits. And you do have an ability to be nimble right? In a way that others don't. And you don't have the money to hire an ex. So you've got to be creative about how to find those resources. And I think there are big, large organizations that are not that creative. And frankly, I think could be dedicating their resources differently and smarter. And they pay for things that maybe a smaller organization is scrappy enough to go find pro bono. And I, um, and it's one of the things I really admire about the small the small nonprofit who is and must be mighty. So um, anyway, this is Sarah Durham, the founder of Big Duck, a nonprofit communications firm. And her book is The Nonprofit Communications Engine, A Leader's Guide to Managing Mission-Driven Marketing and Communications. There'll be a link to the book in the show notes. Um, you should pick up a copy and, um, and uh, share it with uh, your team, both on the staff and the board side, and get a conversation going about how to make all of this really happen for yourselves because it is part of an integral part of the power and impact of your organization is the number of people you reach and how you light them up. So Sarah Durham, thank you so much for joining me. 
Joan, thank you for having me. It's been a blast. Yeah, I, I like doing these podcasts and I hope uh, I hope you who are listening enjoy um, listening to them as much as I enjoy doing them. So until next time, uh, thanks for all the work that you do and um, look forward to another conversation soon. Take care. Joan Gary's obsession with supporting your work takes many forms. Subscribe to her blog at JoanGary.com, reaching over 100,000 visitors monthly from over 170 countries. Explore the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, the best online resource for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits at NonprofitLeadershipLab.com. Join 15,000 kindred spirits on Facebook at Thriving Nonprofit with Joan Gary.